So we have a lot of scripture. I'm not going to cover all of it, but I want you to hear all of it in context today. So I'm going to move right into the word of God. This is 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to read through verse, all the way through verse 34. Lord, open our eyes and hearts. Speak to us now, even through your word. Now I would remind you, brothers, and that's a generic for brothers and sisters. Now I would remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it's plain that he is ex accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, that is to God, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? <clears throat> why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of God. There's so much here. I'm not going to cover it all. We covered much of it last week. Um, there are some things that I, I can't get into too deeply here today. And Paul jumps around in this chapter in and out of arguments and teaching. Today what I'm going to do, and we're going to come back to this text next week as well, and cover other things. But what I'm going to try to do today is stick with one major teaching in here and one major application connected to it. One major theme in here and one major sort of takeaway for us. And the, the big theme is <laughs> the resurrection of the dead is a non-negotiable truth for the believer. The resurrection of the dead is a non-negotiable truth for the believer. That's the first theme, the first point, really the, the main point I'm bringing today. And then we'll come back to a second application or takeaway from that main point. What was going on in Corinth, why Paul had to bring this up front to them, was that they were being confronted by heresies that denied the resurrection of the dead. Paul doesn't tell us the source, but knowing what we can know about Hellenistic culture and Corinth and other Greek cities, we can think of two main candidates for, for what's going on in Corinth. There was a philosophy among the Greeks that was very popular called Epicureanism. Epicureanism held that material existence is all there is. And whatever God or gods there were or are, they were either irrelevant, uninterested, or unable to engage our world. Therefore, Epicureanism taught, since this life is all there is, the best use of this life is to maximize enjoyment here and now and minimize suffering. It didn't mean a life of wanton debauchery, addictions, and lack of discipline. For that kind of living has its own trouble. So Epicureanism wants to avoid all discomforts. So it, it encouraged a wise seeking after pleasure and after enjoyment. A few pieces of Epicurean writing 
here's a little poem or a saying. Don't fear God. Don't worry about death. What is good is easy to get. What is terrible is easy to endure. <laughs> Don't fear God. Don't worry about this heaven and hell stuff. What is good is easy to get. What's terrible is easy to endure. Another saying went like this. Death is nothing to us. For that which is dissolved is without sensation. And that which lacks sensation is nothing to us. The point is, when we die, we're done. We're gone. So make the best of your life now. For the Epicurean life was about now. Enjoying it. And then we're done. And this philosophy would go hand in hand with a denial of the resurrection. Another, by the way, Lord, if you're willing, I would really love for those crows to stay away. <laughs> Another teaching that would become prevalent, prevalent in, in the Greek world was sort of an opposite teaching. This was a heresy related to something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is this idea that what really counts is knowledge. And this teaching argued that physical matter, like our bodies, were crude. They were actually worthless, or at worst, they were evil. Our bodies were headed for destruction, and therefore what mattered was not the body at all, or what you did with it didn't matter. What mattered was the spiritual realm, and true life was not physical, but it's a life of knowing and getting the secret knowledge of eternal beings. This, this philosophy repudiated physical life. It would find agreement with Yoda, when he says to Luke in The Empire Strikes Back, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. Life is about knowledge. And if you can get the secret knowledge, then at the end of your life, your spirit mind, it merges with the great, what they call aeons, the great other spirit truths in the universe. Therefore, this life with its material pleasures, concrete pleasures, it could either be rejected for kind of a life of self-denial or it could be just given over to gluttony, debauchery, immorality, because it didn't matter what you did with your body. So on the one hand, in Corinth, you have these deceptions that say on the one hand, our physical life is all there is. And on the other hand, you have these deceptions that say physical life doesn't matter. What you do with your body is irrelevant. In either case, the resurrection of the body doesn't fit into these ideologies. So into these ideologies, into these philosophies, Paul comes crashing in with the gospel, and he says, no, no. The God who is spirit has given us something much more than physical existence, yes, but he is not ashamed of physical existence. From the beginning of creation, God meant us to have physical life, to have a body, to experience physical reality, even as spiritual beings, to see and enjoy and receive physical gifts from God, beauty and food and music, love and touch. When God created our first father and mother, and by the way, even scientists know that we have a direct lineage that go back to testify that, that all people descend from a common father. 
and a common mother. Did you know that? It's called mitochondrial Adam and mitochondrial Eve. Genetic understanding has proved that the whole human race descends from a common man and a common woman. But when God did that, when he first created our first father and our first mother, in whom we all were, what did he say about that creation? Did he say, oh, crude matter. I mean these to be luminous beings. No, he said, this is very good. This is very good. In fact, God is so committed to creation that he will raise it new, Paul says. And Christ is the proof of this very commitment He is, Paul says in verse 20, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Falling asleep is a metaphor for Christians who have died. And it doesn't mean they're in a sleep state and they're unconscious. It means that they're apart from their body, but with Christ spiritually. But Paul says that Christ is the first fruit the first fruit of a harvest in Jewish culture was the most sacred piece you offered to God. But what was it? It was the first fruit. It was not the end. It was the sure promise of all that was coming. It was the beginning saying, the harvest is coming. Look, here's the proof. The first fruit. And so when Jesus looks at Mary Magdalene, on that first Easter Sunday, and he says, Mary. And she looks in his eyes and says, Rabboni. Her mind is blown. He's not dead anymore. He says, Mary, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go, find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father, to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. And in that moment, Jesus wasn't only proclaiming the best news in the universe, the reconciliation of mankind to our creator, but he was explaining, this is the beginning. Don't cling to me yet. I've got more work to do. The beginning of a plan of redemption in which, I'm just going to wait a moment here. In which, in Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, he takes authority with his Father over all of human history and is working it to bring it all to an unfathomable climax in the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus' resurrection is not only, as as we said last week, Proof that God has accepted his sacrifice for us. Remember last week we said Jesus is risen. Therefore, this unbelievable news is true that we are not in our sins any longer. Even as we struggle with battles with sin in this life, Jesus' resurrection says payment received. Sacrifice accepted. You are no longer in your sins. God is no longer counting your sins against you. But it wasn't only that guarantee and promise of his forgiveness. It's a guarantee of promise of what is coming for all his people. That's what Paul says in verse 21 through 23. He says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. All that are in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When, when all our spiritual and physical potential, all the life that we would become was in Adam, our first father, and when he chose to reject God, which we would have done because all that we would become was already in him, we were spiritually on that day separated from our creator in Adam. We were separated from the source of all life. And that's why God told Adam that in the day he eats of that fruit, he would die. Of course, we might say, well, he didn't die physically that day. But that isn't the worst death. The worst death is the spiritual death of being separated from his creator. His physical death was a byproduct. It was a, a sure to follow from that. See, think of it this way. This is an attempt at an analogy, but physical death is like the branches of the tree that you can see that begin to die, become brittle and broken after the unseen root under the ground is destroyed. If you go into your backyard and you, you hack up or maybe you put some contaminant in the roots of a tree, you've, you've killed those roots. You end their ability to take in their source of life. But when you look at the branches and the leaves, they don't just all fall off right away. It takes place over time. But the reverse of that metaphor is also true. If the invisible roots that we cannot see are restored to life, then that must lead to the visible branches' restoration to life as well. So just as we came to spiritual rebirth from the dead when we were spiritually placed in Christ, just as our spirit was made new from the dead in Christ, so one day our bodies must follow by being made new as well. Romans 8.11, Paul says it this way. Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life or is alive because of righteousness, because of what Christ has done to make us new and pay for our sin debt. And he goes on, verse 11 of Romans 8, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if it dwells in you, if he's really in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You cannot be born again in your spirit without eventually seeing the effect in your physical body. That's what the resurrection is. It's the completion of your being made new. God's not satisfied with your spirit being made new. We are complete beatings, body, mind, and soul. And all of it, all of it will be redeemed. And then verse 23 through 28, Paul deals with the order of God's redemptive plan. We would all love to understand this perfectly. We would all love to have tons of debates and battles about this, probably, hopefully, with kindness. But he lays out an order. He says, each in his own order, Christ at his resurrection is the first fruits. Then at his coming, that is the second coming, those who belong to Christ, they're made alive. Then comes the end 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Christ rises, then when he returns, his people rise. And then Paul says, after some undefined interval, during which Jesus brings all existence, all creation, all authorities, all reality in this universe under his full and complete authority, including death itself, he presents all of this universe to his Father. We'll take a deeper look at what all this means this week. It, it deserves its own series, much less a sermon. But I want to take note very clearly of, of something we can see here, even if we can't all agree on the details in our end times mapping. But what's very clear is there's no vagueness here. There's no indefinite, maybe it will happen, maybe it won't happen in Paul's description. There's no uncertainty about this in Paul's mind. There's no room for, I wonder what will happen, Epicureanism, and ah, oh, this life, and it's so good, isn't poetic and beautiful, too bad it all ends. And There's no poet, this is definite. Paul is adamant that God is sovereign. There is no uncertainty in his conception about what he is going to do. He has a will, he has a plan for human history, and it will take place just as he planned. After decades of materialism, of evolution, of pluralism, of relativism, it can, it can almost seem rude for Paul to insist that this is what is going to happen and this is what life is and what it is for. It is for God and his glory and his sovereign plan. But just as we've seen throughout the Old Testament, this is why we spent part of why we spent so much time around Christmas looking into these prophecies about Jesus and plumbing the depths of these detailed, specific, concrete prophecies that told us when Jesus would be born, where he would be born, what he would do, what his death would mean. We went through the Old Testament scriptures to say God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. He kept his promises before, just as he said he would. So we can know that God will fulfill his promises yet to be concerning the future. And central to that promise is your resurrection. A judgment to come for all people. A confirmation of eternal forgiveness and life for those who have come to Christ in this life. And a just and eternal condemnation for all who have rejected their creator and his holy love. Application takeaways from this. Really, there's one for, for, for today in my message. Sacrificial love is the only possible result from a sure hope in the resurrection. I'm sorry that's kind of long. Sometimes I'm able to come up with short, pithy phrases. 
My brain couldn't do that this time. But this is what I want to kind of elaborate on for the rest of the morning. Sacrificial love is the only possible result from a sure hope in the resurrection. When we're really confident that this is what God is going to do for us, it frees us from the death grip of this life and its fears, its pleasures, its threats, and its promises. For a moment, I want to go back to these philosophies in the Greek world I started with this morning. Because just as they were around in Corinth, they're around today. These ideas, they're like spirits that just won't leave the party. They, if you think of it, we deal with these deceptions all around us now. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the functional mission statement of most people I know who don't know Jesus. Life is great, especially in America if you have a middle-class income or more. It's beautiful. Or if it's awful, well, that's terrible. And I've got to deal with that above all things. But, but life is this gift, and we have to get what we can out of it now. We have to make the best of it while we're here. And try to be kind by all means. But by all means, have all that you can out of this life and the good you can get out of it. The end. We can even find kind of Christian versions of this in, in what's called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel where we're told we can have our best life now through the power of positive thinking. We, we, can, just, we can just claim that promotion or claim that relationship and its, and its health or claim that healthy diagnosis if we just think the right thoughts. And of course, the resurrection of the dead isn't so much denied in these schemas, but it, it can become an afterthought. We don't have to wait for our best life to come. It's now. So let's claim it, and let's live it, and enjoy it. And I hope we'll see in a few minutes, Paul is not against enjoyment. But the idea that our best life is now would be something he would take exception to. But on the other hand, the view that a physical resurrection of our bodies is too crude, that's been popular among established church denominations for more than 100 years. Many seminaries and divinity schools, they're filled with people who would consider themselves too mature in their thinking to accept a physical resurrection. There are scores, I kid you not, there are hundreds probably thousands of professional clergy who will tell you that Jesus' resurrection really wasn't a physical resurrection. It was a resurrection of his ideas. It wasn't an empty tomb that gave birth to the early church. It was his great teaching, his message of unity, and his example of sacrificial love. And I, I have no doubt that Paul would shout into this kind of sentimental elitism hogwash. He says that essentially in verses 29 through 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, 
He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's look at what he's saying here. He's saying, by my pride in you. It's his way of saying, listen, I haven't, you know, Corinthians, I haven't lived for happy hour. I don't live for the weekend. I live for Jesus and for him I pour myself out for you. You're my boast before him that I'm living a life for the resurrection. Not for my paycheck on the weekend and wings night. <laughs> Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with wings night. <laughs> but his point is, I die every day. I live a life of constant struggle and persecution and suffering for the gospel for you. In 2 Corinthians 11, listen to Paul as he elaborates on his suffering for the gospel. This is a church, same church. They're starting to trash him. And he's like, listen, I got to boast a little bit about what I'm doing for you people to try to win your hearts. And here's what he says. Imprisonments. This is Paul's best life now. Imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. He was whipped with terribly, terribly punishing whips that could kill you. You know why they didn't do 40 lashes? Because if you did 39, maybe you wouldn't kill the guy. And he went through that five times. If you would have seen Paul's back, you would have probably thrown up. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Like for 24 hours I'm just bobbing in the water. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul worried about his people. He worried about these churches. All of this, Paul says, all of it, he says, would be lunacy. I'm an idiot. If there's no resurrection. But I'm no fool. He says, I'm not a martyr for martyrdom's sake. I'm not trying to impress you for my self-denial. My love for you is an investment in an eternal age to come. I'm not living my best life now. It's still coming. Do you know that church history tells us that 11 of the 12 original apostles were all martyred for Christ? Paul as well. They were all murdered for Jesus. Listen, who, who martyrs themselves for something they know is a lie? And yet all of them testified, like Paul did, that they saw the risen Christ until their very death. And that was how they died for him. That was how they had the courage to stand for him. We know we're invincible because our Savior is invincible. 
Jesus said to the disciples, speaking of their persecution to come, he said, some of you will be put to death, but do not fear. Listen to what he says. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. Some of you, they will, they will not just give you bad haircuts. Some of you, they will literally cut your head off. But don't worry. Not a hair on your head is going to be harmed. You'll be fine. <laughs> that was what Paul knew. We're not all called to martyrdom today. Who knows what will come in the years ahead? And that's not what this message is about, to try to guilt you into going to the Congo and standing up to ISIS tomorrow. But there is a rich lesson for us here. The surety of the resurrection and our confidence in eternal life, safe with Jesus, it's meant to free us from slavery to this life. I don't mean from caring about this life. I don't mean from hurting in this life and wanting things in this life. I mean from slavery to it. From your peace and your joy being a slave, enslaved to what happens to you in this life. One writer puts it this way. The resurrection addresses those who insist on protection and security in this life. The resurrection addresses those who insist on protection and security of the individual, of institutions, and of country. If the USA falls apart, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my 401k, to my mortgage, to my political party? He says, such persons set up mechanisms of defense along economic, racial, national lines. In sharp contrast, the life of the spirit with its hope in the resurrection does not, indeed cannot dwell on the preservation of the flesh, personhood, institutions, nations. It doesn't mean we don't vote. We don't try to be good citizens. He means slavery to it. He means having our hope in our best life now. He says, the life of the Christian, because of the resurrection, becomes one of risk. A Christian can risk his or her life because a Christian knows this life is not the end. What this writer is saying is that the more real the resurrection is to you, the less you have to keep your death grip on this life and the more you can spend yourself for the gospel and for the eternal welfare of others, for your brothers and sisters, for those who don't know Jesus. See, logically, isn't it true that, that we should be the first of all people to be willing, out of hope, to give our earthly riches, our money, our temporary physical strength, our limited earthly time, to risk our momentary inconvenience or even our reputation before people if it will lead to eternal good. But this is so tricky. As soon as I start to say these things, we shift into moral gears of guilt and condemnation. But that's not the primary way God wants to woo us. He doesn't want us to try to earn our salvation or escape his judgment by living a moral, sacrificial, loving life for the gospel now. He wants us to know that we're already out of our sins and no longer in them, and that we already have reconciliation with him 
and that the resurrection for us is sure to come. He wants us to be motivated by trust in him and hope in what he has already done in Christ to deliver us from our sins forever. This is why Paul is working so hard here to sow belief into the Corinthians and not simply alter their behavior. See, he's not saying to them, stop being such naughty people. He says that towards the end. He says, these philosophies are corrupting you. But he spends the whole chapter on truth, on the hope that they have, that's sure. And from that will come the fruit he's looking for. Just like with Paul, God doesn't want your morality for morality's sake. He wants your life so set on your eternal hope in him, so secure, trusting his good heart, so full of joy and confidence that you are no longer in your sins and because of all that Christ has won for you, that out of all that hope, you can't help but be different and live different. A, a beautiful picture of this can be seen in his first letter to Timothy when he speaks to those in the church who he calls rich. I mean, when you think rich Christians, you might be apt to think, oh, what's coming? You know, there's the... Listen to what he says. He says, he's talking to Timothy, telling Timothy what to tell these rich Christians. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct the rich in the present age not to be arrogant, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. So just follow me through here as we just look at this instruction. First, notice the danger. Paul says, earthly riches can tempt us to find our confidence in them and therefore hope in this life. Put our hope in this life now. And this leads to arrogance. It leads to selfishness as we simply want to tighten our death grip on our best life now. Now Paul could have said, how dare you have money like that? Get rid of it all and be morally a steward. Give it all to missions or live in your greed. He doesn't say that. He doesn't want their money. He wants their hearts. He wants their hope. Out of that will come their right use of the riches God has given them. So he tells them not to give away all their money, but to not put their hope in it, but in God. Yes, he says, even the God who's provided you with this income and even wants your joy in the gifts he provides. And do you know, Paul says to these people, what he wants you to enjoy most of all? He wants you to enjoy real life, true life, eternal life, which you enjoy partially here, but you will enjoy most fully, not in this life, but in the age to come. Yes, Paul says, there is a resurrection coming. And the more you sow into love now, 
and sharing with those in need now. The more you seek God's kingdom now and the spiritual will for others now, by pointing them again and again to Jesus, the more you not only increase your spiritual vitality here, because you do, because we do have joy in Christ here, but the more you're, quote, what he says, storing up for yourselves a good reserve for the age to come. The age to come. The age to come. Paul wants us to know he's no dummy. His sacrifices are born out of trusting in God's promise. And they're really investments. And pouring out his life now to what matters most. In proclaiming the gospel and caring for God's people. He's sowing into an investment that's going to yield a return of spiritual joy now and peace now, but that's unfathomably more massive at the resurrection than we can comprehend. That, that verse was, was read today. The, the principle of the weight of the eternal treasure was read to us a few minutes ago. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our momentary light affliction, this is Paul talking, who just read off a list of his beatings and his shipwrecks. He says it's producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. He's talking to the whole church, though. He's saying even your sufferings, your sacrifices of love, your withstanding of sin, your continuing to seek God in your devotional life, you're continuing to give to the poor or to the church or to reach out to your neighbor. You're continuing to hold at bay your anger and your impatience. You're continuing to run to God in confession when you've fallen. He says it is providing for you an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. It doesn't compare to, to, the, to the offerings, thanksgivings, and sufferings of your life right now. It's not like you put in $1 and you get $2 back. It's like you put in $1 and you get $40 million dollars. He says it's incomparable, the weight of glory that's accruing as we seek to follow Jesus, even struggling to. So listen, I have some encouraging news for you as I land the plane here and some counsel. Some of you are wondering, like me, if the American political experiment that we've been on for the last 200 years, if it is dying a terrible death right now of hateful partisan politics, social media rage. Some of you are wondering if your worst fears of left-wing extremists are coming true before your eyes. Some of you are wondering if your worst fears of right-wing extremism is coming true before your eyes. Let me tell you something. It might be. I have no real insight into giving you any hope about that. It looks awful. It looks worse every week to me. I'm not young, but I'm not old. Well, what did I mean by that? I'm not super old, but I'm not young. <laughs> That's what I meant. And it's gotten so bad in just my 48 years that I've been alive. I, I, I can't 
believe where it was and where it is today, our political culture in America. But you know what? It's okay. It's okay. There is a resurrection from the dead coming for you, and you will be found in Christ and not in your sins. The stock market may crash again, and COVID may resurge this fall and winter and close us all down worse than before and throw our culture and society and schools and retail stores and 401ks into terrible peril. There might be more unrest in the streets because of more social division. It's okay. It's okay. There's a resurrection from the dead coming, and you will be found in Christ and not in your sins. Your career dreams may never be realized. Your job may end up being more mundane and less financially lucrative than your lowest expectations. If you even are able to keep a job, it's okay. Really, I, I, it's okay. There is a resurrection from the dead coming, and you will be found in Christ and not in your sins. Our dearest friends and loved ones, we may fall out of friendship with them this year. We may feel betrayed by them. We may even lose them to death. It is grievous. It is heartbreaking. And it is going to be okay. Because there is a resurrection from the dead. And you will be found in Christ and not in your sins. Your marriage situation, it may not only not change, it may actually worsen in ways that grieve you and make you groan to God in ways you've never imagined. It is okay. I'm not saying it's easy, it's comfortable. I'm not saying don't you dare have sorrow and grief and cry. I'm saying what Paul said. There is a resurrection from the dead coming and you are found in Christ and not in your sins. If you live long enough, you will certainly see the earthly tent of your body become brittle and broken, just as it has for my dad and Jen's dad and all those who've gone before you. That's what's going to happen to you. It's okay. There's a resurrection from the dead coming, and you will be found in Christ and not in your sins. One of my favorite songs from when I was a young boy, um, not like when I was a teenager. I always want to put it on Facebook every October, but I'm off Facebook now, pretty much. <clears throat> it's a song by U2, and in the early days of U2, they were unabashedly, unashamedly, three out of the four were committed Christians, and it was just bleeding out of all their music. And this beautiful song called October. And in it, Bono sings, October, and the trees are stripped bare from all they wear. What do I care? October. And kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But you go on and on. It's beautiful. I want to sing it for you. You can go home on YouTube and look it up October. 
Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. The trees are stripped bare from all they wear, but he goes on, and if we're in him, we go on. So, therefore, spend yourself on Jesus and his kingdom. Take, Lord, I need to hear this as I'm preaching to you. I'm writing it last night, and I'm thinking, oh God, make this true of me. Take risks of love that are sure bets on the last day. Take risks of love now that are sure bets to provide interest on the last day. Make investments that will yield an eternal weight of glory that cannot be compared to the expense you give now. Plead with God for more patience for your loved ones for the 4,000th time. Ask that coworker if you can pray with them because of the medical problems they're going through. Risk the embarrassment of their rejection. Plead with God for opportunities to share the gospel. And risk offending, not intentionally, right? Gentleness and respect is always part of the gospel appeal. But if you share the gospel, eventually you're going to offend. Risk it. Because there's an incomparable return for you on that risk. Give to the poor. Give to your church. Give to your brother and sister in Christ because you know God will be faithful to you. Seek God's heart concerning missions, whether it's staying home and supporting through prayer or giving and taking steps for a long-term commitment. Or step into that ministry at your church, at our church, at your home church, where you think you might be able to be spent on others more than you're being spent now, if you have time. You may not. <laughs> My wife doesn't have time for a lot right now. But there are people who need your discipleship and they need your friendship if you have that to spare in your time. There are people in our church who need your friendship and your discipleship. Make that investment. It, it's an eternal reward that's incomparable to the expense you will spend. One of my old pastors used to say, the best this life will ever be is a glorified bus stop. <laughs> now, you know, it, it can sure be beautiful, right? And with Christ, we get all kinds of tastes of heaven now. All kinds of tastes of the new heavens and the new earth now. But we do wait for what's to come. Our best life isn't here, but we can store up eternal treasure. That's to be revealed at the resurrection to come. Let's ask God to help us.